Dognitive therapy contains material which may be distressing to some listeners, such as domestic violence, animal cruelty and mental health issues. A Podcast One production. Tell us about Tyson. Tell me about Tyson. Well, Tyson was... We rescued him as a puppy. He was about six months old, so I wanted another dog. That's my mum talking about her dog Tyson to me and my producer Dave. And he was a little sort of a thing. He was naughty, he chewed everything and he ate everything and he wouldn't come and he was just a naughty, naughty little puppy. Um, did as he pleased. He was lovely. He, he, um, he got to be a nice dog and I got really fond of him. And then one day, one night, I got this pain in my chest, an unusual pain when I was eating, and I thought that was strange. It wasn't indigestion, it was a weird pain. So I thought, ooh, and I went, a couple of days later I went to the doctor. Turned out it was esophageal cancer in my esophagus. Esophagus, who knew where esophagus was? Like, I left school at 14, where, where's esophagus? I think it's down there somewhere. Anyway, the surgeon said... I think we're in a bit of trouble, but we're going to try and and do something about it. And I said, well, don't tell me about it. You're the surgeon, just fix me up. So I told Tyson about this and said I'd have to go away for a while and have all this treatment of chemo and then surgery and then chemo again and I'd be not in good shape for a while. And he said he didn't mind, he understood, he'd wait. So Mum went to hospital and had the surgery. She'd been there for 14 days. And I said to my daughter, I said, if you don't bring Tyson into the hospital, I'll die. I'm going to die. So please, I don't know how you're going to do it, but bring him in. Well, she said, I see what I can do. So then I get a call. Mum, we're down here. We just got out of the lift. I've got Tyson with me. You'll have to get in a wheelchair and get someone to bring you down to the ground floor. So I did. And I went down to the ground floor and there he was. I'm going to cry. I'll never forget that day. It was just amazing. And I just held him and I put this ugly little black buffeted cheesy face thing on my knee on a wheelchair. There I was with no hair and tubes coming out of every single centimetre of my body. And I just held him and cuddled and cuddled. And you know, when you're a mother and your children get older, they don't like being cuddled. They go, ooh. They don't want to be cuddled, <laughs> but a dog loves it any time. My name's Laura V, and welcome to Dognitive Therapy, a series that explores how human behaviour shapes dogs' behaviour. Today's episode, Who Rescued Who? Our dogs have a habit of being there for us at times when we need them the most. When we're sick, sad or in pain, they're beside us all the way. One woman who has seen this unshakable love firsthand is Dr Heather Fraser. Dr Heather researches the relationships women and children have with their dogs in domestic violence settings. I found out that women in these environments often choose to stay for fear of their dogs as well as themselves. Heather and I caught up and talked about how dogs in these situations can rescue us just as much as we rescue them. Well, I I just really wanted to hear about sort of what you do and what your background is, Heather. Can you tell me about it? Give me a bit of an intro. When I was 18, I started working in a women's refuge for women who had experienced domestic violence in the neighbourhood I grew up in. And 
From there I did social work and uh, I went on and became a social work academic and I've been doing that and been working in the areas of women's violence against women and um, sexual assault and other kinds of violences. And um, about seven years ago I met, just by serendipity really, was um, a mate of mine, a person who's become a mate at Flinders Uni, um, Nick Taylor, and she's a sociologist and is focused in on animals, human animal studies. And she saw me with a picture of my two dogs on my website and thought, oh, I must be okay. And um, we then formed a friendship and a, a collaboration. And we've just been doing all sorts of things animal related since. And it's been really interesting because as a social worker, I'd worked for so many years uh, loving animals, doing social work and not bringing the two together. And that's changed. Isn't it funny how when you see a picture of someone's dogs or when you know that they're a dog lover, you automatically assume they're going to be a good person? Yes, that's right. There's such, I mean, there's all that research, isn't there, about dogs as social lubricants or catalysts between us as humans. And, you know, it does, it's such a great leveller often. If people love dogs, um, like I do, uh, within seconds we're sharing photographs and excitement and so forth. I know all my photos in my phone are of my dogs. Uh, no humans really in my phone uh, <laughs> pictures at all. Do you think that we're repaying the favour back to dogs though? That's a really good question because I think uh, we don't see, we pay way too much attention focusing on what they bring to us and we need to pay a lot more attention on what they, uh, what they need and what we need to uh, bring to them in terms of a reciprocal mutual relationship because if we want... Otherwise, get a stuffed toy. (laughs) So true. Or a garden gnome, I always say. Yes, yes. That's interesting because, uh, you know, dogs provide us with loyalty and mindfulness and empathy and they're so incredibly faithful and they stick by our side. And you're right, I I do often wonder as an animal behaviourist if we are repaying it. Tell us a little bit about the research that you're investigating at the moment. We started with a project called Loving You, Loving Me, um, Companion Animals and Domestic Violence, and that's turned into a book that's coming out with Paul Grave uh, in London in a few months' time called Rescuing You, Rescuing Me. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we decided was we wanted to go and talk with people who had survived domestic violence uh, with animals, um, with animal experiences, Um, And so we worked in partnership with the Northern Domestic Violence Service in um, South Australia. Um, It was the same shelter I worked for 35 years before. So it was a nice little um, circle. Um, And in that 35 years, they'd moved from being a women's refuge that didn't allow animals to a women's shelter that had declustered in their housing so that they had pet-friendly accommodation, which meant that a whole lot more women could leave violent homes and um, uh, set up a new life with their animals with them. So um, that's how it began. And I wanted to celebrate the love that animals, uh, especially dogs, but dogs and cats particularly, give um, give to us and give to us through some really difficult times. Um, and so... Uh, that took a little bit of convincing to the domestic mm-hmm. violence service because they weren't used to framing things through any kind of notion of love. Um, mm-hmm. And in framing that as love um, and talking about empathic love, as we do in the book, that um, what we could do was we could showcase uh, women's relationships that were really important to them that weren't just about men or violent men. 
Isn't that interesting when you say that uh, people who are abused or suffer from these domestic violence situations, you don't ever mention the word love, but what you're doing is turning it around and, and people who are at the, the bottom in their life uh, are able to sort of have an experience or be exposed to someone who does love them. Can you tell us more Mm. about that relationship of of how dogs provide that? Yeah, um, dogs are so empathically attuned, aren't they? They're often selfless Mm. um, in ways that we can't even comprehend. Yeah. They're so so socially pack-oriented that they care about the the collective way more than we do. We care about ourselves and as uh, um, as individuals mostly. Um, and I think with dogs particularly, they um, they have such an intuition. Um, if you're connected to an animal, and if you're if say you're really close to a dog, the chances are that dog will pick up even when you're trying to pretend that you're okay. They'll pick up that you're not. Because they use their senses, they use their smell, they interact. The priority of their interactions is so different. Ours is often talk-based and theirs is so what we call non-deliberative, like not talk-based, non-verbal and physical. And, I mean, you know the delight that they bring, don't you? The, yeah. the playfulness, the even young dogs. We heard stories in our research about... Um, young dogs lying perfectly still with someone when they felt really depressed, uh, suicidal. We had descriptions of, uh, you know, the thing that kept women alive uh, mm. was the love of their animals, particularly dogs. And that's an incredible thing to say. Yeah, it is. And that's that's really what they were saying to us, that I wouldn't be here. We heard it from um, a variety of women. <clears throat> I wouldn't be here today without them. That that was, um, and some of the women um, were mothers, mm. um, but I think the difference is that the um, the animals weren't judging them, criticising them for staying too long, leaving. Um, mm. They weren't in custody disputes for the most part over um, the the dogs, whereas often the children were involved in quite elaborate, complex uh, custody battles. Mm. Um, so I think the unfettered, supposedly simple, but I don't think it is simple love that they give, um, can turn a person around um, to from feeling like and from being told that they're worthless, that they're nothing, that they will never amount to anything, that no one cares about them. The dog just expresses that the ridiculousness of those statements. <laughs> Tell me about the impact that has on children that are in the middle of these you know, violent situations? Well, there's lots to be thinking about um, in terms of children because children who observe their parents, say they're exposed to violence, um, they're not the direct target. So they see their mother, for instance, being abused. They see their animals being abused because dogs often uh, are targets or is used as pawns. So um, if you don't behave in the way I want you to, this will happen to the dog. And we did hear stories of dogs being um, brutalised in terrible ways um, as a, um, a threat to control behaviours. Um, so for children, they're watching that, they're learning that, they're really um, devastating lessons to learn. Um, they may also learn uh, to go on and abuse animals. Um, they may feel utterly betrayed by the perpetrator abusing the animal and then not want... We heard a story of a... Um, 
of a young boy who he was so connected um, to his animal that when um, when the father killed the animal, um, he didn't want to have a new pet for mm. years because he just was too traumatised by and, and too fearful that the same fate would, you know, occur for the next animal. So there's a whole lot of things. There's um, for, for children, uh, being in the close company of animals can be, from all sorts of things, physiologically it can be help you with your immune system. Uh, when dogs <laughs> lick your ears and your face, even if you don't want them to sometimes, yeah. <laughs> um, they... They bring you out of your shell. We know all that research, don't we, that they make us more active if we're alert to their needs. And that's the crucial part. If we sling them outside, shut the door and pretend they don't exist, then apart from us missing out on their magic, what harms are we levelling on them? As we were saying, get a garden gnome if you're going to do that. Yeah. Women often remain with violent partners because of their children and they're concerned about their children. Does this happen with their pets as well? Do they stay with that man because they're worried about what's going to happen to their dog as well? Yeah, they do. They do. Um, There's various estimates. Um, Some of the earlier studies uh, showed up to 70% of women who have companion animals don't leave or delay leaving uh, because of their concerns about the pets. So... um, the, the some of the women we interviewed did leave without their uh, particularly their dogs, or they had to put their dogs into foster care or some sort of other arrangement, and they felt really bad about that. So, um, in terms of the um, the question about do women is are women's safety and their children's safety at risk uh, because they remain in those situations? Yes. Um, but they do so because they also know that the risk that can be um, levelled against those dogs, uh, if we're talking dogs particularly. So um, it's a pretty hard ask to ask someone to up and leave their home mm. and leave often dogs who have been so loyal, protective, have been scarred through the abuse, and then you ask them to just pretend they don't exist, move out and try and what sort something out later. I mean, that's just not Okay. No. So, and most of the women we, we talked to knew that. They knew it wasn't okay. And they felt, as I say, that the couple who did leave, even temporarily, were really scarred and, and quite traumatised by having to do that because they were so fearful of what the, whether the animals would survive. Um, and, of course, there's a whole lot of uh, arrangements um, that we have in Australia where we don't have enough accommodation or housing, you know that, and mm. um, let alone pet friendly. Um, and so there's a motel system that often um, the government and other programs will help women and children stay in a motel temporarily. And so we heard stories about living day to day in the motel and smuggling in their dogs <laughs> in the bathroom and then being told off by, you know, um, but fortunately some workers that they've had to support them have really understood mm. Um and have sort of brokered between the motel owners and so forth. So there's a lot that's um, involved that the public just doesn't think or see about this matter. Gosh, I've been known to smuggle my dogs into places that they probably shouldn't (laughs) be. I can only imagine what it's like for a woman who's going through, you know, what she's going through and to have to do that to save not only her life but her children's life but her dog's life as well. Of course you would do whatever you have to do if if you can. Going back to how 
dogs provide a safety net for these women and children and mm-hmm. the things that they can do that are extraordinary. And as you were saying before, they can save people's lives by providing mm-hmm. that support. What's the flip side of the coin for the dog, though? A dog that's sort of subjected to that violence, uh, that unpredictability, that uncontrollability in that environment and being smuggled into a motel room, for instance, mm-hmm. and all these sorts of things, perhaps not even getting fed or being abandoned for a few mm-hmm. days, all these sorts of things I can imagine are going on just to name a few. What's happening to the dogs here from your perspective? The There's an enormous expectation that they just have to bounce back from the most hideous of circumstances. Um, You know, as humans, we're so blinded to other animals' needs Mm. that I think, um, as a as a society, that what happens for um, animals is, and dogs in particular, is that they um, may well act out like children um, in terms of fear responses, hyper surveillance, hyper vigilance, the sense that they might soil like in ways that they hadn't before, shake, cower, uh, retreat, hide, um, you know, just react to really loud noises. Um, And at the same time, often what's happening is that we're expecting them to soothe us. Mm. Um, And often they're playing that role of soothing us. Sometimes they're expected to soothe us 24-7, which is a really unfair expectation, I think. Um... And I don't mean that as a criticism of anyone who's a survivor, but I just mean of us as humans that we have to rethink some of the expectations we make because what other work, worker works nine, you know, 24 hours a day? For free. You know, you, <laughs> yeah, and you need, you know, like we talked in the book about the need to recognise dogs' emotional labour, their work, that the work that they provide through, say, soothing children, sleeping and cuddling up with um, children, making them feel safe in ways that they haven't, especially mm. post-separation. So we need to recognise that they too, as in the uh, dogs too, feel uh, the effects of violence. And while they, we don't know if they have flashbacks or nightmares, dogs certainly dream, so it's not impossible. Um, but we do know there's a small amount of growing evidence that they do, um, they, they certainly can suffer from PTSD. Tell me what you mean when you say dogs can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Dogs and humans are not as um, different as we sometimes like to make out in terms of our emotional responsiveness to danger. So flight and fright and fight um, can be our reactions and it can be theirs too. So chronic and really traumatic uh, events can cause a sort of high... that hypervigilance, that sort of being really on guard all the time, waiting for something to break. Um, the, what women talk about, walking on eggshells, mm. dogs also have to do that too. Mm. So that can take a toll physiologically and emotionally. Um, have, you seen, have you seen instances in which a dog who has suffered abuse in a, a domestic situation not want to go back into that household or to cow when they did see that man later on? Have you seen some evidence of, of that PTSD in, in yeah, your so, opinion? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We've seen that. And we've also seen that and heard stories about not just them cowering for that man, but also any other man that comes on the scene. So lots of gendered uh, reactions, particularly to men, especially if they're the same sort of height, they've got the same sort of bell- bellowy voice or some sort of feature that's a bit similar. That can, if in human to speak, we'd call it triggering, you know, mm. trigger the reaction. But 
And it might be tempting to sort of think, oh, this is ridiculous, bloody dogs with um, PTSD, you know, what next? But the, <laughs> but the reality is, I mean, we might want to say that, but um, the reality is, is that anyone who can be so engaged emotionally and connected, of course, mm. if you've got that, that, those, that potential, of course, you can also be scarred by interactions and have ongoing what we call a legacy of abuse. So they're no different from, from us in that sense. It's interesting you say that because when I work with a lot of dogs that have been rescued from shelters, we see these sorts of behaviours cowering when they see a man in a, in a baseball cap, for example, mm-hmm. or a certain stature or a certain time of day or a certain noise. And this is a lot of what you're saying, the dogs that have been victims of domestic violence have experienced. Do you think that there's a reasonable percentage of dogs that end up in shelters have actually been victims of domestic violence? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, um, we don't have the exact numbers because there's a whole lot more studies that need to be, but we need also funding for mm. some of these studies for dogs to be taken seriously, not just as play, our playthings. Mm. So, um, yes, absolutely. That We also know of, um, we've worked uh, on other programs with the RSPCA and um, so we know of and other shelters where people are having to relinquish their animals. Now, imagine what that's like. You know, you've gone through all of the abuse um, and then at the crisis point, then you're, if you like, surrendered or abandoned. Um, and for, from a dog's point of view, that's pretty cruel. Um, and that's not to cast criticisms on the humans because often the humans that are having to do that are in the most diabolical situations themselves. But it is to say that if we want to stop that cycle of dogs being surrendered, being traumatised, not being in great positions to be rehoused, then we've got to work with people both in a preventative way but also in a remedial way that when they experience violence that we pay attention to the impact that can happen for dogs. You've seen what happens to the dogs from that side of the the domestic violence spectrum, I suppose. Mm -hmm. When they go into the shelter and they get rehomed, from your point of view, what kind of basic advice would you give to people who have adopted those dogs that perhaps have gone through such trauma that you are aware of? Yeah, um, we've got we've got three dogs, and one of them is the classic for that. Yeah. Um, um, patience, a lot of patience, um, kindness. Um, for me, it wasn't very hard when we got um, our guy Muzzy, uh, Murray <laughs> is his name, a colleague Kelpie Cross. Um, he he didn't know how, he wasn't toilet trained. He didn't know how to behave with other dogs. He hadn't had regular, he was so emaciated. So he couldn't trust that food would be regularly coming to his life. Um and seven years later, he's still acting surprised when he gets another meal. Um, so, you know, that's the, the length of time. So the su- suggestions I'd make is gentle, quiet, calm. Um, think about what it would be like for humans surviving abuse, that loud noises or new si- situations can be frightening, that it can take time, that when we got Murray, he wouldn't let us touch his... Um, it looked like his tail had been broken and he wouldn't let us touch the, his rear end. Um, and now he comes for a, what we call the bum rub <laughs> and, uh, you know, to uh, have his tail down and so forth. But that took years. It won't... 
you know, sometimes I think with all the social media and the gorgeous footage that we see online, people can think, oh, this might take a few weeks. Oh, I'm a dog whisperer. But actually, serious abuse, just like with humans, um, we might see improvements and then it might sort of plateau and then improvements, but you ha- but it's staying, remaining in relationship, routine, positive training and lots of concern. What you're saying sounds to me like when you're working with a dog who's damaged, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, they're actually improving your behaviour as well. Uh, <laughs> when you're talking about being kind and empathic and patient, these are all the traits that I believe are undervalued and, and underseen in, in human nature. Mm-hmm. Can our relationships with dogs make us better people? I think they can, absolutely, because they are... um, The thing about dogs is that they are not like a mirror. They're like the the mirror that you can see. If you have a really good relationship with a dog, they're the mirror that shows you the beautiful side of you Hmm. rather than the accurate side of you. and that's their vulnerability because of the they look at you with such joy and love in, in their eyes. So um, I've known plenty of people, and particularly the programs that we're experiencing um, in prisons with um, men, um, but with women as well, um, have been violent. Um, often what we're hearing is that, that their relationship with a dog can be the first time they've genuinely, genuinely cared about another being cared about them deeply in a way that they've never before and there's other research that's coming out that's showing that it can be a great platform see sometimes people will think this they'll think oh you love your dog because you can't love people you you know you're defective because you prefer animals to people and actually I think that's quite flawed thinking for even though people use the fur baby term and all of that there's very few of us who actually believe that they're human children. Most of us know that they're a different animal, particularly dogs. So given the opportunity to work in, uh, have our lives run in conjunction with dogs, which is an ancient practice, actually. Um, humans and dogs go back for many, many, a very long time. That gives us the opportunity to learn different ways of relating. And for some people who are really stunted, perhaps because of their own experiences of violence growing up, who don't trust, who are angry and so forth, that the relationship with dogs can help bring them back to relationships with humans. Do you think that there is a danger to the dog, though, if we do anthropomorphise by making them our fur babies and spoiling them? Yeah, I do. I I mean, at the superficial level, it's all very sweet and it's fine, Um we talk about letting dogs be dogs, at least sometimes in their lives, letting them sniff people, you know, sniff bottoms, <laughs> roll in dirt, you know, get and other dirty. Things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, like letting them um, do things that sometimes are annoying or inconvenient for us mm. because they soak up a lot of times where it's annoying and inconvenient for them. You know, um, we leave them, we expect that when we come home we'll get the rock star welcome, which we usually do. Mm. Um, you know, so there's a whole lot of things that if we want to honour their love, if we want to be fair, play fair with them, then sometimes we have to put down what we're doing, we have to pay attention to them when it's not convenient, that we have to think, I don't, look, it stinks to high heaven in the car because you've rolled in all sorts of kangaroo dung um but you know that's you've had a you've had a great time I appreciate that and I'll just soak that up do you think though that 
it really is unconditional love on the dog's end or do they know that they just have no choice and control and they're just sucking it up and making the most of it? That's another good question about power relations, really. Um, I think there'd be some dogs who don't have uh, any other... They're so enslaved that they know uh, that there's, there's no way out. You know, the fences are high, uh, the food might be meagre, but they know when it comes and they're so... You know, we might, in a canine sense of a translation, look at hostage syndrome, mm. you know, where there's mm. the world is a frightening place to be on your own, so they'll take their chances with this maybe brutal, quote, owner. Um, but I think that's not the only, the only template for how we can relate, and I think lots of people have very beautiful relationships, very caring, and I don't mean that kind of... Um, you know the movies about the showing dogs and being all best dog in show or whatever it was called that <laughs> we're, we're all fussy and crazy and we, they have a special toy that we have to go to the ends of the earth for and all that that caper. I'm talking about people, whether they're homeless, whether they're on the dole, whether they're really wealthy, um, where they really get it that the dog has their own what we call agency, their own need to be themselves from time to time mm. that, and we work with them in a positive way for them to adjust their behaviours to be in human company so that they get to be part and parcel of our, of our lives. I, mean, I think that's one of the best things about positively training your, your dogs is that, that it lets them come to be much more involved in your life. Choice is an interesting thing with dogs, isn't it? Most of the time they don't have choice and people will have high fences so that they can't mm-hmm. escape from that home, but that doesn't mean they don't want to. I That's mean, right. I, I don't have fences on my property and everywhere I go, my dogs and my cat faithfully walk <laughs> beside me. What do you think we could be doing to make dogs want to be with us more rather than have to be with us? Notice them as their own being, mm-hmm. you know, treat them as as their own being, not just as an extension of ourselves that we turn on and off. Um, not as not as surrogate children, I don't mean that, but I mean just paying attention to if you are at work a really long time that you have, you you know, where possible you get someone, a mate or you pay someone to go around and check in on the dog, take the dog for a walk, give them, give them some interaction because... What do we do? We bring them into our lives because they're so sociable and then we ignore their needs to be sociable. I'm Laura V, and you're listening to Dognitive Therapy. If you enjoy this series, give it a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to this show for free. In your upcoming book called Rescue Me, Rescue You, that's coming out early 2019, can you tell me a bit about how dogs help in post-domestic violence situations? um, They help in all sorts of ways. Um, They help create a sense of home in the new home. Um, They certainly soothe uh, the human victims, children and adults. Um, They... Uh, you know, I suppose if you see them as part of the family, then that's one less family member that you've had to lose through this process. Um, so the the kinds of contribution they can make, some of the things I was talking about earlier around um, 
just coming, putting the head on your lap, um, knowing when um, I've had women describe dogs licking their tears off their face, um, the uh, you know, and a paw put on their lap. Um, little dogs. Uh, we've heard stories of little dogs. Um, uh, sleeping around the top of a sick child's head and staying there, um, like almost like a fur hat. Um, so all sorts of like physically reassuring and emotionally reassuring aspects um, and also practical things like, depending on the size of the dog, but even a small dog can bark loudly, um, protection, mm. a notification, an alarm system. Can you talk a little bit about the community exhibition that's part of your research? When I went to the Northern Domestic Violence Service and we um, talked with uh, the manager there is Julie Falus and um, uh, Nick Taylor and I and another woman who was an art therapy um, a worker with children from this service, Carly Millich, um, we decided, okay, so um, what we'd like to do is we'd like to create a visual exhibition of beautiful photographs or artwork of women and their animals, and it was mostly dogs. Um, there were a few cats. Um, so then we got another person on board. Her name, um, she was an Aboriginal uh, worker, Celine Graham from Relationships Australia. She came on board, and through her contacts, we got a couple of people through the Mawson Lake Photography Club, and they were survivors of violence too. So they went around, and they, so they understood the importance of um, confidentiality, um, and security and so forth. So they went around and they helped photograph the women and children and their animals. And w so the animal is identified but the people's backs or it might be the side of the head or what have you. And so we had this exhibition and we had a local MP come and open it and we flew over a guest speaker. and um, we. So it was a real celebration of survival um, and interspecies survival, surviving together. Do you think there's a link between those who are comparatively voiceless and abuse? Yes, very much so. That's a great question. That, because um, the lower status you've got, the more likely you are to be abused. And the more likely you are for your abuse not to be even noticed. So if you're uh, a high status person and you get abused, often you've got a lot more recourse, you've got more support to get recourse. People think, oh, that's outrageous, you shouldn't treat a person like that. But if you're toothless, living on the streets, or if you're a dog, um, that abuse is just often ignored. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some moments of uh, abuse of, say, dogs that will get a lot of media attention. Um and they're often the quite, you know, severe incidents uh, that you might see. But everyday neglect and abuse of dogs actually doesn't get that much attention. If someone is in a domestic violence situation and they have a dog, what message would you give them? The message I'd give them is um, know that you're not alone. Know that it's okay to care about your dog, to worry about your dog, um, that it's perfectly reasonable to want accommodation with your dog um, I would say um, explore those options do it carefully um, like if you're exploring those options on your phone make sure that you're quite careful that if you're if the perpetrators around uh, you don't want them seeing this um, 
just ex- just think in your mind, okay, what can I do? What provisions can I make? What story might I give to the perpetrator to try and relocate the dog? If you need to relocate the dog before you do, um, there's... So I suppose what I'm saying is, and if you've got a couple of dogs, um, you know, um, co- there are more and more workers in domestic violence and related fields who are understanding about the relationship between women and their dogs. Um, and... You know, I think reach out, be careful when you're reaching out, um, know that there's not a ton on offer in terms of assisted uh, programs that assist with animals, but um, that you can certainly ask and that um, the idea of being reunited with your animal once you've gone through that process, if you need to foster them out, that that can be a beautiful process that you too can rebuild that if there's a break in the connection, it's not necessarily going to be a permanently bad thing. There's hope. And I can tell you now that plenty of people, and I'm a survivor of domestic violence myself, that there are plenty of people who've gone on and and have lived really great lives. Uh, There's hope and uh, there's a lot of love um, if yeah, you can only just un, uh, tap into some of the services and supports that are out there. Heather, you have given some extraordinary insight into this issue. Thank you so much for your time. That's a pleasure. You can keep up to date with Dr Heather on Twitter at Dr Heather F. That's D-R-H-E-A-T-H-E-R-F. Can I ask, when, when you look back on Tyson... What's the main thing, the one thing that stands out for you, the main, main thing? Um, probably, probably the main thing is when I got the call that my mother had died, I think, when we lit the fire. And what happened? We lit the fire and we just sat in front of the fire and I just held him. And, and it was the most amazing strength it gave me. Because, um, I mean, it doesn't matter how old your mother is. When she goes, she's gone, you know. And it's a, a very precious moment to try and cope with. And it was him that helped me that morning. It was that morning was surreal. I mean, it's not every morning you get a call from a, a place saying, I hate to tell you this, but your mother's died. Hmm. Hell, it's pretty bad. So... I didn't go off into a frenzy or anything. I just quietly got some firewood and lit the fire and got it going and it was cold, I remember, and we, we got warm by the fire and then when I went and told Laura that she'd gone. So, oh, he was amazing. This show was written by me, Laura V, and my amazing producer, Dave Swalensky. Audio production is by Darcy Thompson. Executive producers are Jennifer Goggin and Grant Tothill. If you want to see additional content, photos and videos of some of the gorgeous dogs in this series, go to our Instagram page at podcast1au or check us out on Facebook. Dognative Therapy is a Podcast One production recorded in the Podcast One studios, Melbourne.